Alrighty, today for this unnamed podcast that I have no idea what I'm going to call, but um, I'm here interviewing former LG Evil player Avast. How are you doing, buddy? What's going on? I'm doing very good. What about yourself? Though, granted, we did have this <laughs> discussion right before it started, but you know, add the content. Just, in there. just for the the people watching at home, I am doing terribly. I woke up at 5 a.m. to watch Apex. Uh, I couldn't even remember what happened. I know Flashlux got blown out in the first series. I was really uninterested. But hey, we're here and we're uh, we're alive, so I guess that's a good thing. Um, jumping. A little bit more on topic. Um, let's talk about something that is a little bit uh, controversial, I guess you could say. Um, let, let's talk about Mercy straight away, because I think that's something that's it, like interesting to see what the community's reaction's been so far, and seeing oh, that is indeed interesting. These uh, these videos pop up from Korea with these weird like PTR Apex like uh, testing tournament that they did. And uh, with Gambler's weird video that he he put out, um, what are you what are you thinking about this new Mercy change? What's up with uh, what's up with Mercy? Um, it's you know it's uh, when I first saw it, I was mm-hmm. I was uh, very I, I don't know it was it was I, I was very interested in, in the direction they had taken the character, okay. and as I've looked at it more and seen. Because, and seen the PTR changes and seen people play with her and play with her myself a little bit as well because I hopped into PTR with some people and played about. Uh, I really like the direction they took her. Mm-hmm. Um, she definitely is... Now they're playing a little bit more of a numbers game where they're going to need to tweak her a bit, in my opinion. Okay. Because uh, as you self, as I'm assuming you've seen some <laughs> of these PTR scrims, you, oh, yeah. now people are able to nano the ulting Mercy and she can literally wipe teams and finish fights on either side of the offense or defense mm-hmm. which is obviously broken like <laughs> and defeats and people were complaining about this before uh it defeats the purpose of dps characters existing if you can just nano your mercy right. and then they, they'll kill them so i think they're gonna have to do some tweaking but the actual direction they've taken the balance of the character is in line or at least uh more in the vision of what people in the professional scene wanted to see her move towards mm-hmm. uh so overall i can, i gotta give them credit i'm generally very a very very big critic of blizzard mainly because i want the game to succeed so i want them to fix their flaws mm-hmm. and so obviously but also i'm very fair so like when they do something that's good i will 100 give them props for it and i think the mercy change is a very is something it's a very it's something good in the right direction and that's something that um i think a lot of people have been very not critical, I think critical is a little bit too harsh of a word, but I think that people have been very um, stern and very, like, standoffish with Blizzard on a, on a few things. But I think this, like, past week has been some of the best, like, changes that we've seen in Overwatch. I mean, we've got, like, DM coming out, um, these Mercy changes, a lot of other cool stuff on the PTR. So how is it from, like, a, a pro's perspective? Like, has, has like, something changed with the way that they want to create or kind of mold overwatch in your eyes has has like uh the the paradigm shifted in a way um yes i do think so um for a variety of factors i think you know no matter how much uh flack i like to give them i think they've always been very interested in their game and they want to make it succeed and obviously this is like 
this is really one of their flagship titles at this point because you know just the insane amount of sales they have the player base and stuff of course yeah um so they always have wanted to succeed but up until recently with the prospects of overwatch league literally right around the corner at this point um and with all these signing periods in and stuff they've definitely i think up the tempo because the big thing that for them is that all this in pretty much in their eyes and from what we've gathered and what they've said to us and what everyone can really you know surmise mm-hmm. is that this has all been a test run for this entire scene before him has been a test run for Overwatch League where they're they've been doing their own thing gathering data and now they're going to make the changes they want to do and really up the tempo and make this the game uh and and make it really a much more polished scene and make it into what they really want it to be, just you know, chip away at the marble type of thing. So I definitely think that their actual, maybe not their philosophy per se, but at least the tempo that they're enabling this mm-hmm. philosophy has it has increased. Mm. Um, from a professional standpoint, right now, it hasn't necessarily directly impacted you know how the game is currently played so much. Mm-hmm. But in the future, I think it will drastically change it just from what we've seen. And you know, with the addition of Doomfist and some other things, you have seen changes. Uh, but I think it's more of like an immediate future what will change rather than a right now what will change. Okay, okay. Now, you did kind of bring up something that really speak like kind of sparked my interest was the uh, the signing period and how we've seen like we've seen teams start to really come out now and start to sign everybody. Um, and it feels like it's almost a little bit late in in the the signing period, kind of late in the season for everybody to be signing. Do you think there was a reason why like people weren't signing straight off the bat? Was there something like, not, maybe not behind the scenes because I don't I don't want to like, you know, not, I, by no means am I trying to like pressure you to say anything you shouldn't say. But um, is it is it weird to you as a player that people weren't signing like straight away? Like no, absolutely not. Okay, it was not at all weird. Um. There was some, uh, well, let's, there were some instances <laughs> where I think it was weird, like, um, there were things where, you know, teams like Lunatic High and uh, Envious, you know, teams that have been right. together for a while, proven how strong they are, especially Lunatic High, you know, mm-hmm. but and then also, but also Envious as well, you know, they've really proven their strength, and there were, you know, for some reason it took them a while to really finalize any sort of roster deals, and I know a lot of it is from what a lot of people have been going into is that for Overwatch League, a lot of these owners have been wanting to sort of build their own teams. Mm. And I don't necessarily think that's a bad philosophy because there is so much free talent. And because of how Overwatch works, you know, you can mix and match people and potentially build much better rosters. because you And because there's just been so little, you know, there's just so much there, like so much, so much actual blank canvas for you to work with, essentially. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, so it was, I was a little bit surprised at how long it took those particular teams to get signed on wholesale because I, I really just think that, you know, regardless of what you think, you're still taking a gamble when you build your own roster. And then when you have very, very, not just proven rosters, but proven to be the best rosters, at least best for multiple long periods of time, mm-hmm. you know, they, uh, that struck me as odd. But everything else, it didn't because a lot of these teams were still getting, were, don't even have staff yet. They're still finalizing their staff. They don't. They, they don't have the. They don't really even have. They're still picking up the infrastructure. And you know, you know, let's say for example, the most recent franchise that really made an announcement is like Overwatch Boston. Right. Overwatch League Boston just announced like their their head guy. You know, Huck. Like, mm. and they still have to build their staff. You know, to the best of my knowledge, is what it seems like. They're still building their staff. They're still, they're still talking about you know, 
creating stuff. So you can't really build a team until you have staff, until you have infrastructure to actually like get it all together. And for some of these people, this is their first foray into esports. Um, so not only do they have to build the staff, but they have to make sure that they really need to scope out the scene and really know what they want and, you know, know the players and know the teams and, you know, all this other stuff and really know the game. So I think that the, the time that it's been taking is not, has not necessarily been a factor at all. Mm -hmm. I mean, and in reality, the signing period at this point has, it didn't start till August. So it hasn't even been True. a month yet. Yeah. It hasn't even been a month yet. But that's, but really that, that definitely was something that I, I've heard echoed um, with, a, with a few people that I've talked with in, in around the community was that they were, they were concerned with people not like, it was weird to them that they weren't immediately signing off the bat. And it, it was just kind of interesting. I, I'd like to get everybody's thoughts on that because I think it's, yeah. it, it's, it's interesting to get. I mean, for sure, I would say that there are very specific instances where I would say signing off the bat is... I, w I was scratching my head. I was pretty puzzled about it. Right. Um, and also, from my own perspective, I would say maybe if you wanted a more stable scene right off the bat, you could have just signed a lot of teams wholesale mm -hmm. and then got the ball got the ball rolling. But from the perspective, from the time they still have a lot to them, along with what they really want to create, I can understand why it's taking more time, especially with all these factors into play. For sure. So I don't. I really don't think it was. It was really more of an issue of this whole thing needs to be made. Right. You know, yeah. you need to you need to build the building before you fill it with your with your actual employees. For sure. So it's, for sure. It's I think it's a very a different scenario. Now, something that is just breaking um, to the listeners at home, um, Jacob Wolf just posted an article on ESPN. Um, I'll link it down in the description somewhere, wherever, um, or I'll put it on the screen. Um, that Blizzard is is helping these uh, new franchises uh, to create new brands that won't be specifically tied to existing esports organizations um so there is not going to be any like cloud nine niners right like it's going to be a new kind of ip to go with blizzard's new ip um which i thought was a little strange not strange but it's a different take and wanted to get your thoughts on that like what do you uh do you would you rather have like a a cloud nine lunatic high or like a like a immortals, I don't know, L.A. immortals, if you will. Like, is it is it weird to you that they're they're kind of changing the these uh, brands around? Um, it's not weird. Be in fact, it's completely predictable for okay. what they've wanted so far in the scene and how they particularly are approaching the game. Because mm -hmm. you know, as you know, a lot of other esports they're moving towards as the you know essentially the money, the value in right. esports continues to grow. And more traditional organizations look at it and like see the potential mm. and they're already investing in all these things. It becomes more and more apparent, especially as you just, I mean, it could really just mirror the, in some ways, yeah. the development of more traditional, yep. you know, longer lasting sports that uh, it's always going to move towards away from these sort of endemic organizations towards franchising. Mm hmm. Um, but it's obviously a very different change because the entire esports culture up until this point has been endemic organizations. Right. There hasn't necessarily been franchises, especially not tied to geographical locations and with, you know, revenue sharing and blah 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 blah. All you know, all this stuff that you right. see, uh, all the all these other economics and economies of scale that you see in bigger, more traditional sports. Mm -hmm. So it's definitely a shift. 
and it's different, but I'm not going to say it's bad or unpredicted because it's what Blizzard has been wanting this entire time, and it's mm -hmm. what other esports as well are moving towards with LCS, moving towards, you know, franchising and all this other thing. Really, the only other sport that hasn't really hit that point, the only, the only other two, I guess, that haven't really hit are the Valve ones. Right, with, yes. You know, Dota 2 and CSGO. Right. But personally, in my opinion, I, I, I personally think they will be moving towards that at least some point, especially if these particular models are successful. 16, right, yeah. So... That's, for sure. That's what I'm thinking. That definitely makes sense. Um, when it comes to uh, kind of not doing it right, but having the experience necessary to operate in this scene, do you think it is who of these new organizations to come in to pick up people that have been in the scene and use the already pre-established infrastructure that these teams already have? Or do you think it's completely fair and normal to get their business people in? to to run the books run the you know talent acquisition do you think um which which, which side do you play there which 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 area do you uh, think? to clarify the question are you asking whether these new franchises should have their own entire these entirely different group of people that they yes. bring on other yes. than the endemic organizations yes uh well i will say <laughs> that more than likely uh-huh the second option has happened because there isn't any other people they can get with insight into the scene the, do you understand what I'm saying? There, there is no other talent available right. for them to bring on. Okay. Um, the only people to be hired within to fill these positions are people that are already within the scene themselves. Exactly. Now they might bring in their own talent, you know, to manage other things like production mm -hmm. right. and you know everything else that isn't specifically esport and player and scene related. Mm -hmm. You know everything else that you need to create a functioning ecosystem and create right. a functioning team. But in terms of the actual talent involved and development of teams and players and building, the only people available to fill those positions are people from within the scene currently. And if they bring, and if they were to bring in other people that weren't from the scene, mm -hmm. then I would I would one hundred percent disagree because <laughs> they just don't know what's happening. And I would say the same exact thing for any other esports mm -hmm. because you can't just bring that's like you can't just bring people between scenes, especially esports scenes where it's like a little bit less. Um, I guess, or a little bit more esoteric as in, like, you know, more specialized as in, mm -hmm. like, you can't just, like, you could maybe see a someone from, you know, a soccer team maybe moving to a different sports team of some sort, like baseball, right. or, you know, because it's, it's the knowledge is more widely out there, there's more, you know, money and development per se, but in esports, I just don't think it's possible, because also there's a lot, I think there's a lot more specific nuances so that's really my take on it for sure no I, I i completely agree with you there and that's i think something that anybody who's been in esports would tend to agree with you with i think there are merits for the other argument as well where you have people that are a little bit more business savvy than people that are in esports that tend to be a little bit younger a little bit more kind of uh not flippant but just it, it's like a fresh community in a way because like esports isn't really that old compared to like football and, and basketball and very traditional sports so it is a, a very uh interesting topic to to kind of throw around sometimes but uh something that you kind of created not too long ago was this this map video that kind of went in depth and really uh colorfully talked about uh blizzard's map design choices um why do we hate elevators why why are we uh why are we elevators? Why do we hate elevators? <laughs> well, first of all, I have a personal grudge against elevators because mm -hmm. as a child, I was stuck in one. Going oh, through. are you? Wow, that's so. that's kind of terrifying. Yeah, I know it was very it was very upsetting <laughs> at the time. So I, I still don't like. I still feel relatively uncomfortable around. Fair them. But, enough. And in a game design standpoint, elevators are terrible <laughs> in a game like Overwatch mm -hmm. because they 
you know, I use the term RNG, and they're not actually RNG. They're not random. Sure. But you have no control mm -hmm. of when to they raise and lower. You have no. You sort of just have to time it to where. And you know, and there isn't really any external timer other than the actual looking at the elevator itself, which you can't necessarily see anywhere. Right. So, some you could you know use the term RNG to express the fact that you actually don't really have any control, or, and it's tough to time of when they're actually going to be there. Mm. Compared to like things like jump pads, where you just hop on and you go up, or just stairs where you can just walk on up. <laughs> right. Uh, and that's and also in a game like Overwatch where it's very fast paced and also currently where high ground is such a strong mechanic and such a strong thing when it comes to map design because of sight lines and being able to control things and contest the point. Mm -hmm. You're when you have uh, when you have map elements that make it harder to access any of those things, especially when you don't necessarily have when the when not every character in the game can access it equally. Some are much much more easily able to get to it right. than others. Uh, it create it definitely does not lend itself well to good map design in my opinion or good game flow, and it and like I said and like I said in my video as well, I think in some ways it can in, in fact uh, promote the use of certain characters and compositions over others because they're just regardless of their parodies and strength. Mm. If you have two things that are the exact same alike, they can both. Let's just take for example, if we have two guns and they both have the same clip size, the the same damage, you know, same accuracy. But if one can reload faster, obviously you're going to take that one because the slight advantage is better than no advantage. Right. And so I think being able to, especially, and it's even more pronounced when it comes to things like movement and map design in games, because if you're able to access these elements of the high ground much more easily and fluidly than others can, I think it can make, uh, make certain characters less viable than others. So you did mention the jump pads, and that's something that I've heard has been a little bit polarizing not obviously as much as the elevators because i feel like you and i and i believe mangachu has been very very vocal about oh there's the been dislike. lots of people that don't <laughs> like elevators it's it's been a commonly shared theme forever yeah. in the professional scene but it just hasn't really been talked displayed about yeah. to the public mm -hmm. so definitely definitely do you think that um or do do you find jump backs to be okay they're better than elevators. Fair enough. Fair enough. I mean that uh, honestly, for uh, personally, when it comes what how I would like it, I think jump pads are honestly fine because okay. it's they're they're very you, you can get to a high ground piece, you can move it very fast, mm -hmm. as opposed to like stairs where you have to climb up it. And because of you know on, this is going to be a potentially another topic for another video I was going to make, but because of how they've designed character movement and game modes, like right. the more ground you have to cover is uh is really a limiting factor in some ways of how you approach fights because time is so valuable right and overwatch yep. so i prefer personally i prefer methods that you get there faster like jump pads as opposed to stairs unless it's a very integral part of the map design okay um and how you approach objectives because decreasing the amount of time it it takes to do to just not necessarily to to set up and get to something but to actually like climb and access a particular mm -hmm. feature or element i think is very is a very good idea in overwatch and really just well yeah mainly just in overwatch i don't know it's tough to touch it other games but definitely overwatch i do like jump pads though that's the gist that's okay. just what i'm saying all right all right when it comes to like a map when when you kind of were talking there a map that really jumped in uh into my like foresight was the um was eichenwald 
Is would Eichenwald benefit from having like a a, a movement or a uh, a quicker option to access like a bridge and in the top of the tower? Is is or is that like kind of flanking path uh, up the stairs by Mega? Is that is that enough? Do you think that they could add something there? I think that um, with Eichenwald, they I ha I do I will give them credit where in terms of being able the various routes to access the high ground uh -huh. along with the differences in the approaches are very solid, I think, right now in terms of second. Okay. But I could definitely see jump pads being added uh, to access it quicker. The real issue with in my with Eichenwald, in my opinion, when it comes to high ground, isn't so much accessing it mm -hmm. as it is just how oppressive it is when you enter the point. Sure. And I think that they really need to look into options. I mean, ma making high ground, high ground even faster and easier to access is an option to mitigate the strength of it. Mm -hmm. um, it's one design philosophy, but one that I've heard, for Eichenwald in particular, because I don't really like to necessarily have, because I think every map has, should be approached individually. Sure, sure. When you necessarily yeah. balance it because of the things that make them unique. Definitely. Um, so for Eichenwald, I wouldn't necessarily want to see jump pads. I would like to see better ways for offensive teams to approach the point without getting, without just being essentially Normandied <laughs> by the high ground. Of, sure of Eichenwald Castle. Definitely. Uh, that's really the thing I would like to say, and that's also what I covered in my video as well, where map design sometimes favors certain compositions, where if you have excessive points with huge high ground and large open areas, mm -hmm. it makes certain compositions less workable than others because of the strength of spam damage and mobility and things like that. So, Now, would that would that same kind of philosophy be applied to, let's say, like Hollywood Second, where it kind of does feel that same kind of Normandy style, where the the attacking team is just stuck on the payload around the payload, while the defensive team is just on the high ground, positioned in weird flanks, like scouting. Is is that something that the elevator removal could fix? Um, yes, it could, and and Hollywood is but is better at it than Eichenwald Second. Okay, because they're. Simply because the biggest problem with Hollywood isn't so much this high ground is so oppressive because, because it is very, very strong and it is mm -hmm. oppressive at times, but it's that it's very hard to access it. Okay. While the opposite is true for Eichenwald, right. essentially, where it's easier to access, but it's way stronger mm -hmm. because of the because of like just the position it holds and the lack of cover. Hollywood has more cover and, you know, us on LGE as well, like back when metas were still shifting, we would still play control compositions yeah. where we would just tank up in a room. And we, uh, in some ways, negated the strength of high ground. Mm -hmm. Well, Eichenwald, like on offense, you don't really have that ability to necessarily. You have like pretty much, you have two options where you can run to the far left side and go up those stairs, or you can just run straight down the middle and try to go into the bottom of castle. Mm -hmm. But the problem with both those options is both take you through huge sight lines, where it's very easy to be jumped and spammed the entire time. Uh, while Hollywood, it's a little bit easier to move between these points of cover without these massive sight lines and killing grounds and things like that. So they're two; they both share similar problems, but they have essentially two opposite uh, extremes of the problem. Mm. That makes sense, definitely. Um, the The interesting thing with map design is that, like you said, it is kind of approached, or it should maybe be approached the way that a character would be. Like, these maps are kind of a character um, in themselves, where you want each map to feel unique and different. Um, when it comes to control, do you think that that, would, that kind of philosophy still applies? But maybe to a lesser degree, where you have 
these sub maps and you want to approach them with as much love and in and kind of care as like a character would get but you also have to keep them within a theme do you think that is there any control sub maps or tile set um in your mind that could see a significant tweak or change that you feel is a little bit uh jarring or oppressive and for, for control you're specifically talking about king of the hill correct yeah um Yes, absolutely. <laughs> many of them. So many of them, in fact. But the most glaringly, obviously, one of them all is Li Zhang Tower. Okay. And I included that example in there. And, you know, I made the claim in the video that you couldn't swap the, the, actual, the actual individual uh, maps in, within the actual large map of right. Li Zhang. Yeah. But then someone in the comments was like, oh, you can. I was like, oh, I didn't even know that. So my bad. So my bad, Blizzard. I didn't mean to. I don't try to overly uh, nag on you. Um, but... Most specifically is the stage garden yeah. where it's the bridge that you can approach on either side and then the long the weird like, like white hallway. Sideway. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, that map is awful. <laughs> oh, it's bad. I don't it's 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 um the fact that you have two chokes and entrances both hugely spamble yeah. and you have to approach over a bridge through treacherous terrain and so many environmental hazards that you can easily be booped off of mm-hmm. that you have no that it's tough to control and predict at times like like you can you can if you play it very well and you move very fast you can but it's just like just why do you make it so insanely hard to re-enter your point yep. and then your second option your second your your <laughs> you know your only other option your second option brings you to tons of sight lines it's a very long approach yep. so it increases the time and on top of that even when you're still re-entering a point it's a very small choke where with environmental hazards on either side that you can be booped off of so i that is one of the most glaringly obviously things that i just i hate (laughs) unnecessarily like i'm fine with environmental hazards because it it gives you know an extra element to the map and Mm -hmm. allows characters to sort of make dynamic plays but not necessarily when your only way to enter the point is just sparse with or not sparse it's just filled with environmental hazards and just it's very very just it's just everywhere, really. It's just it's just everywhere. It's it, it, and I don't like it. I think it's another poor choice of map design, mm-hmm. especially since. Uh, uh, so I think I definitely think that that particular cost map can be changed. Some of them are better than others, but the most the biggest theme with cost to why they, in my opinion, need to be changed is the re-entry to points after you lose a fight because of these some of these themes I examined in my video. Like mm-hmm. they have they don't have enough entrances and the entrances are extremely spammable. And then like I just talked about before, where they're filled with even more treacherous environmental hazards that right. can be tough to mitigate. Uh, I think that's I think that's a pretty, like a big problem with King of the Hill because I came from a uh, I played a game before this called Team Fortress 2. Right. And the way they approach King of the Hills is they have some of the same problems where there's choke points, but you have the defenders and offenders have uh you know, you have disadvantages to being both. Like the defenders of the mm-hmm. point once they control it have longer spawn times. Right. They uh you know, it's harder to control all these entryways because you have so many different entryways and, you know, and things like that. While in Overwatch, it makes the defender's strength, especially in King of the Hill, but really in all the game modes, very, very strong and accentuated. So I I think those are particular map design problems with King of the Hill that can be addressed in terms of re-entering the point. Something that was recently changed or is seemingly being addressed as the best of five versus best of three kind of uh, debacle around uh, King of the Hill or Control. Um, were you 
Well, okay, so let me ask it this way. Um, from a player's perspective, is best of five that detrimental? Personally, I don't think it is. Okay. Uh, honestly, this is an area where uh, it's once again an area where it just comes to how Blizzard sort of wants it to be designed. Because I think there are pros and cons to both. There okay. isn't a clear, there isn't clear advantages to either one. Um, because in best of five, you have the ability to, if you mess up on a stage, you still have chances to bring it back. You know, you can create more competitive games, closer games because of it. Uh, while but in BO3, while BO3 you don't really have like if you mess up a stage on BO3 you have one stage to get it right or you lose mm -hmm. like it's over while yeah. BO5 you have three stages and they're gonna be three different stages and it, one of them might be more to your liking than others you know you might be better at one stage than the other so For you sure. can still have a chance mm -hmm. um, but also that creates problems as well and what people a lot of people have complaints with is for BO3 the well, for BO5, I should say, compared to BO3, is sometimes you'll go through all these three stages. You know, you've gone through your three unique stages, you know, three different ones. And then the team that's better at one stage will re-roll that stage they're better at than the other team. And so they'll win the next round and win, and you know, and actually win the game. Right. While BO3, it means you have to be equally good on all the stages so you're prepared for all of them. And you can't just be better at one particular stage and hope to roll it twice over. Uh, so there are definitely... And then also people, like, some people say, like, it, you know coffee games get too long i think that's and eh, i don't really think that's a necessarily a really important issue because of how fast paced the game is in general right but it's uh but i definitely see in terms of people necessarily re-rolling stages they're good at and the opposing team isn't hmm. to being an issue versus when it comes to bo5 versus bo3 but also bo5 allows for more competitive games sure so i think it uh is really at the end of the day it's just how does blizzard feel like they want to do it and you have both advantages and disadvantages to both. Mm -hmm. So, me personally, I had a pro I had no problem with the BO5 King of the Hill. Mm -hmm. Um, but I I'd be perfectly fine playing BO3 as well if that's what it came down to. For sure. Okay. Now, something that was or is kind of interesting to get a, a pro player's perspective on is um how how do you like controller King of the Hill? Does that is that something that you enjoy? Because it seems like the community or the viewers, the people that, you know, the hardcore people that go in day in, day out and watch Overwatch, wherever it might be uh, hosted, um, they like Control. Control isn't terrible to watch. Um, there are people who dislike it. Um, but it seems a little bit more negatively looked at, where it is kind of just crazy and it's hard to spectate, where, as from a player's perspective, is it fun for you to play Control? Do you like playing Control? Is it something that you would rather play over, let's say, like 2CP or Escort? I don't know. What are what are your thoughts on, on that? Um, I've always been mixed on my thoughts. Okay. Um, some points I really, really like Controls, others I didn't. I think... But I think the biggest thing to say about Control is if these elements of making re-entry so incredibly hard for someone that's trying to retake the point were removed, mm -hmm. I would definitely not feel... I, I wouldn't be too hesitant to say that Control would definitely be one of my favorite... Like, my favorite game mode, potentially. Okay. Because that's really my biggest beef with Control still, is that I... Because it has, like, a great... It's a lot faster pace. It's good fighting. A lot of it... You know, it's just, like... It's not so much based around controlling map elements. Now, you could say it removes some of the strategic elements you see in 2CP and sure. Payload. But, and it's a lot more involved with more of 
actual team execution in terms of fights mm -hmm. and DM elements in fast-paced game. And I'm fine with that. A lot of people have problems with that. In some ways, it comes down to personal taste. But I definitely dislike control at this current mo moment because of how oppressive re-entering the point is. And partially exacerbated by these, by these really choke-holding and spam-heavy compositions that we see around a lot. So... That's my personal thoughts about control. It could be it would be my favorite if it if I didn't dislike it so much right now. <laughs> fair enough, fair enough. That definitely makes a lot of sense when it comes to just how the nature of Overwatch is played just in general. Um be, control has always kind of felt for me like a glorified deathmatch. So do you think that with the introduction of deathmatch and if it was accepted by the community fairly well, do you think that that could replace control in the future? No. Not Absolutely all. not. No, no deathmatch. Overwatch as a deathmatch game is not uh, is is I think a very uh, it's not suited for at all. Okay. And more importantly, just for esports in general, I don't think aside from like a very few games like Quake where they have TDM, mm -hmm. and even then that's not even the flagship game mode, and people don't necessarily enjoy it because at the end of the day, people like duels and things exactly. like that more because right. people want to see more than just people shooting each other. They want to see. The thought process behind it. They want to see the thought process. Right. They want to see the strategy. They want to see map control. They want to see, you know, thinking ahead of your opponent. Because that's what really creates uh, exciting moments in esports and and specifically in Overwatch in general. Definitely. Because um, even in CSGO, where it's maybe a little bit more DM oriented, there's all the, you know, you have to talk about all the rotations. You have to look at the smokes. You have to look at flashes. You have to do, you know, all sorts of, uh, you know, inflating fire, right. you know, how you approach points, you know, and there's so much more to it and so much strategy than more than just shooting the opponent team than actually just than actually just deathmatching with them. And Overwatch in particular is a game I don't think that's at all suited to that game mode and objectives are core and central to its gameplay and the viewership experience. So jumping into that kind of core Overwatch experience, talk to me from a pro player's perspective on how and why it seems like teams that just throw together just this amalgamation of talent just seemed to succeed. Why, why, uh, why, why, where is that disconnect that teams that should like, and do stick together, they don't, they don't fail, but they, it, it's, it's very odd to me that like teams like envious and, and with phase doing as well as they did. Cause I didn't have them coming out. We did some predictions with uh, some of the Winston's lab guys and I didn't, I didn't have them doing as well just because I thought that, that that synergy that built up uh you know team cohesion wasn't really there just yet so i didn't have them doing as well but they came out and they really performed where is your kind of take on that is it am i completely wrong Go i mean ahead. i don't necessarily think you're wrong <laughs> i think you're just there's more nuance okay. to it than just saying throw all these star players together in some sort of you know just a a humble job of of, of things and you'll just and you'll have a great team because we saw that approach taken with other teams in the past like that's NRG, true that's true and they completely folded and there there's all there's been all sorts of experiments in overwatch mostly obviously nrg and right. uh and i mean and you can take for plenty of examples i don't even think i don't think necessarily envious is a good example of teams that are just thrown together a bunch of star players okay. envious as a roster they has did, been together they have been essentially from the inception of the game. That's true. The, That's they, true. They've only really changed one player ever. And it was their, well, they've changed two players. Mm -hmm. There was their DPS slot to effect. Right. Uh, and then obviously they Mickey. swapped out. They swapped Internet Hulk out for. Um, well, they just swapped him out and moved, uh, and got a different setup there. They got a different coach and things like that. Yeah. So, um, 
I I really don't think that it's that it's really as black and white as you know. Here's star talent, and here's a team. Mm. Um, it really is dependent, and some and part of the reason why these Overwatch League team owners and some which like want to build their own teams, and that you really don't know you it's you really don't know how good a team could be until you build it. For sure. For um, sure. and you know you do have teams with proven track records, but are they the best iteration per se? Uh, because we saw, because us on LG Evil, we were the, our roster was the longest continuous roster, yep. one of the longest continuous Definitely. rosters in, in Overwatch, and also it, specifically in the North American scene, if you don't include Envious. Mm. We didn't change out players, and we had great success for a very long time. It wasn't until very recently, especially this past contenders, where we started, where we started to dip and we didn't have the performances that we liked. Um, and that could be attributed to a variety of things, but I would say that long standing rosters, it all depends on the team synergy okay. and the drive of those individual players rather more than it is just like, oh, let's just build a new team willy-nilly because we've seen plenty of experience like that where it didn't work out. Mm -hmm. But I also don't rule out that even for continuous rosters, you see it in CSGO and other esports too. Even when they have continued success, you will see them swap players still because they want to maybe do more. For sure. Um, and that's just team sports in general. That, that, yeah, that's, that's so, very true. I think that it's more nuanced to saying build, you know, build a team with all your favorite players. Because also <laughs> something that is neglected a lot, and something that is that a lot of times these star players from teams, you know, you'll have players from teams that weren't doing well move to another team and start doing great. Most mm -hmm. specifically, all sorts of players from XNRG. Oh yeah, that are on like you know that are all on like uh, what is now FNRG FNRG FB FB, and stuff yeah. like that. Um, and you have players that were doing really well that went to teams that didn't start that didn't do well. Mm -hmm. And a lot of a lot of how players interact and how you perceive them is dependent on team synergy and how they're supported and how their team environment works. And it's sort of a and also it's sort of a conundrum for players as well in Overwatch in particular, especially for like support players, mm -hmm. I think. Um, and tank players to some extent, where you know, you're not necessarily the flashiest player. Your whole job is to support your team. You don't really ever get, from aside from a very few standoff perspectives, which and even then are pretty few and far between. You don't your your entire performance. You're you're pretty much judged on how good your team is right. for the most part. Definitely, you're never really. You're, it's not like DPS players where you can see them pop off and be like, "Wow, they're this guy's doing great. He's the carry per se." But no one understands. Yeah. A lot of people don't understand how DPS players are enabled by their team, and Definitely. if it weren't for the support of their team. They wouldn't be able to do what they do, and I think a really good example of that is Lunatic High, where some people don't necessarily think Eska is the greatest DPS. You know, they think he's good, but they don't think he's like superstar tier. Mm -hmm. But and and people just, but he still does incredibly well, and he's very solid, and his teams wins, and he does what he needs to do. And a lot of that's because of the particularly stellar backline performance of mm -hmm. Lunatic High's uh, support, uh, pretty much flex tanks and support characters. Yeah. So. It's really tough, but you don't really see... But obviously the best team in the world, so they get the praise. But you don't really see that in some of the other teams because they're not really examined to the same extent. For sure. uh, so I think it's a... So to, some, to pretty much surmise, it's a very nuanced opinion and there are plenty of good rosters you can build, uh, but you also can't really do a cut-and-paste strategy with at least giving some time for teams to synergize. For, for sure. Now, to, to kind of add a little bit of context to, to not just kind of jump in and, and like interrupt to just to kind of back not back up my opinion but explain where i was coming from um i i, I noticed an article that sideshow wrote that was about these these rosters that do find change 
to to be a success. And with Kai Kai talking openly on Twitter about how strong he he felt the American Overwatch World Cup team was, he thought that they were almost apex contenders. And from the rumblings and rumors that I've heard around NRG currently going into the Overwatch League, I find it very interesting that these teams not necessarily are thrown together. I guess that was a bad way of putting it, but um, they do find cohesion very quickly, almost, where it, it, it obviously is a, is a very strong thing, and I think that even from my own personal philosophy, I wish teams would kind of draw out that roster life a little bit longer just to get the full the full story behind it, Because and I, and I think that LG Evil did it really well. Um, and teams in other esports like um, CLG, um, I think that they do it considerably well. And it's something in esports that I think is not lacking, but I, I, I kind of personally, for my own weird uh, reasons, I wish they would kind of extend the roster life. Just to add a little bit of context to that question, it was it was kind of just this oddity that I think is strange that these these rosters are seemingly having success with very little little time invested into them um, with its members. Yeah, I absolutely. I think I, I completely agree with your points. And obviously you just need, I, you obviously didn't necessarily mean thrown together. Yeah. Per se. yeah. But, um, and you know, when it comes to the world cup roster, I wholeheartedly agree that like, uh, they're extra for Jake was, you know, my teammate for a right. very, very long time, you know, the team leader and stuff. And, you know, if it weren't for him, the roster wouldn't have been together to some of the extent because, you know, he had a philosophy that we all shared to where, mm. you know, we're all we stuck together. You know, we when we moved from org to org, he's like, you know, it's it's all of us or none of us. Right. And I think we proved ourselves to, to why that was a good philosophy in many Definitely. ways. But when you look at World Cup, they're just all very talented players individually. And they all just have and they very mesh very well individually. Now, I think some of their greater challenges have yet to come. For sure. uh, with playing the stronger teams of the other groups, because regardless of how you feel about them, because mm-hmm. uh, I think personally, I think they they've been played I, they played extremely well. Uh, in fact, yeah. above expect my expectations because I really didn't think they'd be gelling so fast. Mm-hmm. Uh, just from my own, just from my own experience, but because they're but they're all so incredibly strong players, um, and I'm really glad that they're having success. Uh, and because really, you can only be you can just be glad for that. Uh, but, you know, we still have to put it necessarily against some of the stronger teams, especially sure. stuff like South Korea and the ones in Canada and things like that. Though, I mean, we have seen them play in the past, but I, I, I you know, I think this is a case study of where you can't ever predict necessarily. Mm-hmm. You just have to do it. For sure. Like you, if you take players and you build a team and you give them some time, they could they either work out or they don't, you know. Mm-hmm. And and it was tough to necessarily predict what was happening, it took some time to build the roster because I think Overwatch is another game where it's really tough to get the full picture on how players work together until you've actually done it. Uh, and that extends to both, you know, leaving a roster continuous a little bit and just building a new one. Mm-hmm. Um, because it's obvious when teams need change, but it's not so necessarily obvious when they don't need change. That's true. Uh, which I think is something to that needs to be worked on at Overwatch more because it was obvious base phase wasn't necessarily happy with their results, you know. So yeah. they built a new roster, and then they had great results. But I mean, before that, they were doing for a very long time. They were one of the best teams in the world. Yep. Um, and then things changed, and they let it sit out a bit, and they tried swapping around, and then eventually they found success because they swapped. So and then you know, there's all sorts of you know topics like that where there just needs to be a lot of nuance when it comes to roster building, and 
uh, it's just something that has to be worked out a little bit more as time goes on. Because really, with all this free agency, you're really going to see all these mismatching of people oh, yeah. that you didn't necessarily like. Like, oh, I didn't, you know, I didn't think about this, but then I see them and they're doing really great. And yep. it's just like it's what I call the FNRGFE effect, where <laughs> you have like, you know, you had all sorts of players that you didn't necessarily think were incredible on all these variety of teams, and they and they come to the forefront. And they realize that it was really just a team synergy issue, right. and they are really good, like clockwork and movement from gale force esports and you know just the list goes on uh you know there's like because on those teams they didn't necessarily have a lot of success mm -hmm. and those particular players didn't necessarily have a ton of success but then they get to this team environment and they're very strong they prove how good they are and it's just really a it's, it's a scientific well i really i don't even know if it's a scientific process as much <laughs> as it's just a trying stuff out process which i guess could be it's i guess scientific in a way scientific, so. definitely definitely now you say you say scientific, and they kind of lead it into a thought that I just had. Um, speaking on the X or the the formerly the artist formerly now known as the the roster of LG Evil, um, I found it funny because I've interviewed a couple of the the players or your former teammates, and they say that Jake is very wise beyond his age, and he he likes to talk almost sagely right so is there any like weird advice that he's given you guys like mid-match like any any sagely tips he's given you first of all and this is going to be a little bit of a this is going to be a friendly jab okay okay this is going to be this is going to be someone that i you know i i love the guy and i was with the team for a long time and we were <laughs> and you know obviously we we're friends we went to like very, we went to a land event together with mm -hmm. the packs out when we're still under hammers it wasn't actually a land event. it was where ng and you take place and we all and we met each other and stuff it was right. great uh Verbose doesn't mean wise. I just want to put that out there. <laughs> okay, a lot of people give him a lot of credit because he he's a walking thesaurus and sure. he's really great. And as he said in his own LFT, he's been media trained from birth, you know. And he's a he's a liberal sciences major uh -huh. for the most part, so he's very very good at crafting his his statements. Sure. And that's a friendly jab. He actually is a very intelligent person. Mm -hmm. Um. And he's really smart and he's able to convey his points really well, especially when he's given you know the time to present it. Uh. But real, but honestly, he's never given me any advice because I'm older than him. Okay, and, fair enough. Uh, by like a year, and so because he's like 21 and I'm 22. All right. And uh, I have my own things because he, you know, he was a liberal science major. He did philosophy at first at his college, and he swapped to like economics, but he mm. still was very much into that stuff. And I'm an electrical engineering and nanoscience major, nanoscience minor. So we're like very different sides. Definitely, yeah. Of the spectrum. Um. So we had different. We didn't, but we didn't necessarily have different philosophies because I've always. You know, so and we had we were able to have good talks because you know he was he was very witty and I always consider myself as well able to like Definitely. I just really love you know talking about stuff. But he was just a little bit too it, more verbose than my taste. But he is a very <laughs> intelligent guy. Now in terms of sagely advice, um, he's maybe given me a piece of advice, but I don't nest. But I don't think it's appropriate enough to share. Okay, on fair this enough. Particular that, setting. That's fair. So that's fair. and it was for a topic that isn't really for general use fair enough he ha so because he has a wide uh he, he has a lot of knowledge so okay. about a variety of topics that i don't necessarily know so because i'm obviously like i said we're different sides sure. so i i don't i can't really tell that stage of advice but he has at least some you know to share fair enough i'll let the i'll let the viewers you know tease their imagination a little bit you know let let your imagination run, run wild at what jake could have have uh told about I, I guarantee you you'll be very you probably won't guess it so <laughs> fair enough um now, talking about the team a little bit, you, you did mention that Jake, and it is very you know obvious and public that, that Jake was kind of that 
that core leader. Um, but it seems like, and it sounds like from your, your twit longer that you were a very vocal portion of that team. Um, could you talk a little bit about how, what, what your core inter-team communication was? Like, what was your role within the communication kind of uh, hierarchy was in the team? Were you like, um, go ahead. When I first joined the team, mm -hmm. so, I mean, giving myself a little bit of backstory, I played on a team before that called I'm Your Huckleberry with a bunch of people that i known from a previous game, okay. two, and we had some limited success, but we were probably at best, like, during the height, like, top of Tier 2, never really... Okay. Well, well, I guess it depends on how you define Tier 2, but how <laughs> I define Tier 2 is we're looking at North America, per se, just for sure. example. Sure. So, the, so, you know, toward, towards the top of the Tier 2 scenes in A, like our Apex, per se, mm -hmm. and, then, uh, and then we sort of fell off, and then after that team died, I was... I was approached by them to go play because they knew who I was because we'd all played a pre that the game I mentioned before, yeah, yeah, yeah. TF2 before this to get uh, at the higher levels and they and they had played with me and they knew that I was a, a strong player and I had good comms but they and so pretty because I've always been Lucio was never because I play you know main support role Lucio for right. Lunas Game Evil and that's mainly what I've been playing for Huckleberry too and I was I never really was a fan of the role but I was always forced onto it because I was a very strong communicator and I was able to main call. Mm -hmm. Um, and when I joined LG Evil, they had just lost Verbo, who is also another very strong team lead. And Jake uh, had sort of been – he wasn't really the same shot caller, per se, mm -hmm. as Verbo, but he filled in a lot of calls. And then he sort of stepped up to the role as after Verbo left, sure. or at least just it gave him more space to. Uh, and that was sort of the same experience I – when I first joined the team that I had is that Jake was the main caller. He wanted to do things his way, and this was his strategies, and we followed them. And I didn't necessarily, I didn't necessarily, I was more of just like my own micro, micro calls rather than macro. Okay. Uh, but as time was on, they enjoyed my calling style more. So I started taking over more of the calls and Jake himself also wanted to step back a little bit and let me take over calls a little bit more. Okay. And then, um, and we sort of found a balance. And then as time continued to go on, I continued to take over it a little bit more and more and more because he wanted to keep stepping back so he could focus more on his individual play rather than calling. Uh, and so I would say, you know, when we were like at our, when we were like, when we were probably in the middle of Carbon series, we were mm -hmm. doing like maybe like any, the range between like 50 50 me calling or 60 40 for me calling jake calling okay. you know stuff like that so it was still all totally relatively even with maybe shifting towards me a little bit more of the time maybe shifting towards jake a little bit more time it was pretty fluid okay um and so but i was definitely a a, a big shot caller and i've always and i was a shot caller before that before i joined the team uh but i sort of and then it's sort of just like we tried to incorporate it into, you know, Jake's already style. And you saw in his LFT as well, he sort of wanted, he'd say he'd be a caller, but he wants someone else to handle what he called macro calls. Sure. And that was a lot of what my role was during when we played, though it shifted, you know, somewhat more to me, like I said. But, like, I was the one that would track ults. I was the one that would call rotations. I was the one that would maybe sometimes approach how we're going to be shifting players during a fight while he, pretty much his calls would be more like, Oh, hey, we're gonna try to focus this person, and you know we're going to, you know I'm gonna pop this ult and you're gonna do this right. type of thing. So it was more of like the f some of the finer details, while I was the one that did everything else supporting those details. Sure. Um, but I'm but like but like personally, I prefer to be a little bit more engaged in the calling than that when I'm actually main calling. I prefer to do a little bit more, 
But just because of how our team dynamic was, and I was entering a team with Jake who liked his own particular style, and we had to figure ourselves out, that was sort of how our calming styles worked. Makes sense. I mean, it, that it has been a, a trend in, in the interviews that I've done when I talk about um, leadership and communication, is it does seem that there are kind of these two figureheads on each team. Uh, that one does the macro, one does micro, and they, they can play parity to each other, and they can kind of share... Um, roles at times but it is it's fairly defined when it comes to a team by team basis that uh one team you know both every team seemingly has like a macro and a micro caller which i think is interesting coming from like a a background in like league and starcraft where you really didn't have a caller but in like league you had you know a long history of one person kind of leading his troops and it's interesting now that overwatch you kind of have two two generals on the field, which which is interesting. I don't know. It's not a bad thing, or I think it's it's really a, good a thing. difference. I think in how the games work because sure. it is tough for one singular person, in my opinion, to be to do all the calls mm -hmm. in Overwatch because you can't. It's not like League where you have a much because of just the just simply the camera view. Yeah. You're able to see more, and the game is slower, so you're able to think more, and you know you have more time. You really, it is tougher to balance all that responsibility and all the things that go on Overwatch and tracking everything that's happening with one person. Mm -hmm. It is a responsibility that should be shared, I think, in some ways by two people. Not necessarily shared to the same extent, but at least the load is balanced. Mm -hmm. Or if you have an even more fluid calling style, like everyone is contributing their comms and you just sort of have one person organizing it and making it into a plan. Sure. So I think it's just a fundamental difference in the games. Um, and a lot of times when a person says they're a main caller, they're, you know, they're describe what I said, where they do a, a lot of calls and they do a lot of the macro calls, but a lot of some of the more micro plays themselves, they might leave to others. For sure. Well, that makes a lot of sense. Um, there is a lot of information that is being lost with the camera angle in the way that it is. Um, where in League, like you said, it, it is a very like isometric view. The top down, you get to literally see everything if you wanted to um so yeah a lot of information is lost being played within the fps kind of a point of view so the more people it seems like that can communicate it it is the better um and that's something that kind of came from not came from but uh that kind of uh, sparked the question was i remember watching a kind of like calm listening in csgo with like the swedish the Swedish teams or some of the, the European teams and they were very like precise and, and very crisp with their calls. Like it, they didn't really chat too much. It was just like, nor did they like get really hypey and, and shout a bunch and like call targets kind of like how it is in Overwatch at times, or at least it seems like it is um, where it was very calm, collective. And it, it was kind of refreshing coming from like Halo and where, where there, it is lots of just shouting call outs and shouting, targets and kind of somebody's trying to form a plan and it's kind of very hectic um is that relatively spot like does that does that make sense coming into overwatch like is could the comms be a little bit more cleaned up in terms oh, I, of you know that's something that every team can always strive for uh -huh. is, is having more precise and clear comms mm -hmm. but it's just the nature of the game definitely in yeah. many ways um you know csgo they they sort of have the i guess the best way to put it luxury to <laughs> you know, really keep the comms clear and, you know, this is this and this is this. Because right. CSGO, people aren't wall riding and For speed sure. boosting around. You're holding corners and that you're planning true. rotations. Um, so it's a very, and there's no ultimates to track. Like, it's a very, very different game. So mm -hmm. I think this, as it scales in terms of 
complexity and just stuff going up on the screen, you, it's a lot tougher to keep everything more ordered. For sure. Uh, but it's definitely every team should absolutely strive to have better communications because it's something that can only improve you. So, and I'm sure there are teams that I'd love to listen to the communications and see exactly like, you know, teams like Luna. Lunatic High, or actually, even when I hear the calm listening to like Lunatic High, they're still yelling, <laughs> yeah, they're still they, screaming, they popping so, off. So really, I think it's just something that exists in the very, you know, axiomatic nature of the game. So now, when you when you said uh, that you would be interested to look into, you know, looking into comms and kind of looking at that, would you? Um, obviously, I think your your goal right now is to be player first, but would you? perhaps look into a back-end position at, like, a, an Overwatch League team or even a contenders team? Would, do you think that you'd want to be an analyst or a coach or maybe even a desk host? I think that you have a great voice. and uh, Not not to say that it's a bad thing, but I think that you can talk for days, it seems like. I think Yeah, I mean, I was a caster okay. before. And I was a player for TF2. Then I quit playing because I didn't really... I wasn't enjoying it as much, but I still was into the scene. And people were like, yeah, you should cast because you have the game knowledge. And so I casted, and people liked my casting there as well. Mm-hmm. So I definitely think, I mean, that would be a longer-term thing for me because I've always wanted to be a player. For sure. Um, and I enjoy being a player, and I think I've proven I can be a player. Definitely. Um, and But, like, you know, that's more of, like, you know, progression, a career path down okay. the line. is like I would love to, because what everyone's goal here is they want to be involved with esports. They want to be a player. Right. They want to be a player as long as possible. And then, you know, maybe they'll be a coach or an analyst or a caster or work for Blizzard in their esports department uh, or work for an Overwatch League team in some other infrastructure spot, mm. you know? Uh, and that's really the, the, the path that everyone wants to go down to, myself included. My personal preferences, what I, my inclinations, what I lean towards, is I want to be a player first. Right. Uh, but then after that, I'd want to be some sort of staff or caster. But if opportunity doesn't necessarily smile on me, or smile on me, depending on how you're looking on it. Like, <laughs> For sure. May, maybe I get good offers. Uh, I can't really, like... Can't indulge. I can't really predict, hey. predict the ebb and flow of the universe, per se. Like, Fair then, enough. Yeah, I would take the opportunity, absolutely, because it's still a dream to be involved in esports and to be part of, you know, a community and to make it make your passion a reality For sure. and something that you can subsist off of. Definitely, definitely. No, I thought that was really interesting because I didn't, I didn't know that about you. I did a little bit of, you know, digging, but I wanted to keep things light and not too scripted. Yeah, I mean, obviously, it's not that interesting. So, really, I wouldn't expect you to run full background checks. No, I, th people working I, I find that the... super interesting that, you know, where people come from and, and um, what they've done before, you know, I've interacted with them in wherever we've crossed paths, you know, like... I've now met you through esports, and it's like, well, what did you do before you did esports? Well, you know, I, correct me if I'm wrong, but you were in like the original like Bird Noises roster with. Uh, no, with no, no, that's no, a common oh. misconception. Okay, it's a common misconception. Everyone thinks we're all together in the Bird Noises roster in Team Fortress Two. We uh, were not. Uh, I was in completely separate rosters. I never played with them. I played against them, but never enough. played with them. Okay. Um, and so, but we we just happened, but we all just know each other, and we're you know, brought together because of Team Fortress 2 before this, and then my time on Huckleberry before that. Gotcha. So, not before that, but during the game. Huh, okay. See, like, like that, that type of stuff's interesting to me. That's, like, that's interesting that, you know, that is a misconception that I didn't know about, um, that you were a caster, you weren't really part of this Bird Noises roster that is, you know, kind of came up and did really well for, you know, what they did. Um, but, yeah. I think, uh, 
I think that's all I've got for you because I, I, we've been going for about an hour now and I don't want to take up too much more of your time but let the folks at home let the people listening where can they find you what are you doing what's what's coming up with with a vast what are what's uh what's on the horizon uh well you know as we just said the team search just started so and I can't really necessarily give details of right. any me or my teammates searches by any means but sure. you know be on the lookout for that obviously but the signing period doesn't end until October and there's been rumors that it could extend longer. Dive, yes, so, that's true. So we don't know. So, you know, might be a while for that. But until then, uh, you know, I'm going to be just playing the game. I'll be, I'll be trying. People enjoyed my map video, even though it was very, it was my first video I really ever made. And it was hastily thrown together. <laughs> so, but people enjoyed the things that I brought to the table and the concept that I explored. So for, I think I'll be trying to make more of those. Definitely. And expand on, and especially expand on topics that haven't necessarily been uh elaborated on before and bring in you know perspectives and things like that that haven't necessarily been seen or mm -hmm. just it just ha they really just haven't been elaborated on um so i'll continue to try to make some more videos about that because people seem to enjoy them and you know it's always good exposure definitely uh and i'll keep playing you know now i don't really enjoy the matchmaking that much especially towards <laughs> the end of the season but maybe if the season six changes that are rumored to go through go live um i do stream occasionally i've been trying to stream more when i do play but i just the problem is the main content you bring on on an Overwatch is ranked, and I just, even though I have a, a good rank and I'm always in the top 500 or top, you know, always in the top in terms of the rankings, I just don't, not like the tippy top, obviously, because I don't play ranked nearly enough because I don't dislike it, and also it's tough for support players to climb in some way, but uh, I do stream, and they can catch the stream, and so do a lot of my other teammates as well. Uh, so I'll be doing that. Plug the stream, where, where can they find you? It's uh, Twitch TV. Uh, under a vast underscore o. Okay, I'll slap that down in the description somewhere. And that's the same. That's the same for my Twitter as well. Okay, I try to keep the same, you know, name. Same everywhere for same. a lot of it, for the most part. The only where it's not the same is my YouTube account, where I have that singular video I've uploaded because it's like a really <laughs> old one. Fair enough. When I was maybe like thirteen, it was like it's like a vast da bomb or something. Hey Because I played Demo Man in Team Fortress. So. Uh, okay. But I, still, I enjoy the name still, regardless. But yeah, but that's pretty much my handle for a lot of stuff. So I'll be trying to stream more, especially when Season 6 goes live, and hopefully the changes are good. Um, I'll be trying to make those videos, and then in the meantime, just you know, trying to get on a team and just seeing what happens. Awesome, awesome. Well, obviously, best of luck from me to you. I hope you have all the best success in the world, and uh, I appreciate you coming on, you know, the, the pilot episode for whatever the hell I decide to call this show. Um, True. Whatever it is, but... Thanks a bunch. Thanks for listening, everybody, and uh, I guess we'll see you next time.